Okay, so it's nice to nice to see all of you. Um, I've just gotten back from an in-person retreat, which was kind of cool to be doing that again. I went to IRC. Um, so that was the first time I'd been there as a kind of as a yogi in um, 20 months, I guess. Although I was at a spirit rock retreat a little earlier, but um, so I was I was managing and so I wasn't totally in silence, but I was it was interesting because I felt again kind of how my system goes into retreat mode and how it just remembers the retreat process um, that I've done so many times. I found it remarkable how that is somehow saved in the system, essentially. Um, and I also found myself marveling at the kind of changes of perspective that happen so easily, so naturally on retreat. Um, the sort of seeing through of our typical ways of organizing experience. And so I'm inspired to talk tonight about some of the areas of experience that are more flexible and less predictable than we sometimes think in our daily life where things are, you know, our state of consciousness is relatively ordinary, um, which is fine, but it's just only one option, right? So you know, we can get into other, other modes on retreat. So um, I don't know, this is just kind of a, for those of you who have done a lot of retreat, this may not be surprising, but I think it might be an interesting kind of reminder of how many of our areas of life uh, aren't such a given as we would think that they are. Uh, you know, if we, if we weren't doing the practice, weren't seeing that uh, there are other ways of perceiving. So uh, I want to start with pain, which is one of the ones that many of us encounter anyway in daily life, but you know, also there's retreat-related pain of, of knees and backs and other things, um, challenges, that, the differences that happen in the body on retreat. So in particular, one thing about pain is that it doesn't increase linearly, which one can discover through retreat practice where you're doing a very set schedule every day that could include as much as six or eight hours of meditation um, and, you know, it's not too surprising that when you arrive from your daily life and you start doing that, the body hurts after, you know, about maybe day two or so. It's like, oh, my God, you know, another sitting and, you know, this is it's not so easy on the body, especially as we get older. Uh, so then there's the, but there's this uh, mind state mindset that comes in where we say, well, so logically, you know, I'm probably my knee is hurting because I've had it folded in this sitting posture for, you know, six hours a day for the last two days. So, and it's going to be five more days of retreat because it's a week long retreat. So we have, you know, this this graph in mind that says, you know, pain versus time, you know, keep doing the activity, it gets more and more pain. And so we just project, oh, it's just going to get worse and worse. I better sit in a chair. I better, you know, not do as many of the sits. Um, but what's really intriguing is that if you keep doing the activity that's causing the pain, namely sitting on your knees on the floor, 
by the end of day three, I find the pain's usually gone. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's not linear. And so we, our assumption is challenged by the reality of experience. Um, that doesn't mean it happens that way every time. I'm not, and at the, you know, the day numbers might be different for you, but I find this repeatedly on retreat is that there's an arrival where, you know, the body has to get used to it. And then I actually have in my mind a concept of um, the retreat body. And there will come a moment where I say, okay, I've got the retreat body now. And it's a different body. You know, that's what I pointed to in the meditation. It's a different body. And it behaves differently. Um, which is quite interesting. Now the pain may come back later. I often have days on retreat where, you know, for a day I get really sore. And then yeah, the next day it's gone again. It comes and goes. But it's a different body. It doesn't behave linearly. Um, yeah, so that's worth investigating and not making assumptions. Now, of course, if the pain does keep increasing and it starts, you know, persisting past the sit, that can be kind of a warning sign that, yes, you are doing some damage to the system or something. I'm not just saying to power through it, but, you know, sometimes, and certainly if you're powering through with kind of an aggressive attitude, like, all right, I'm going to tough out this pain. You know, that's a different thing, but this is more just staying with the experience, like the practice is anyway. So I recommend that, you know, not making that assumption about how it's going to increase linearly. So then we also have um, the area of sleep, another area where people think a lot about it and analyze it and are sure that they know all their patterns, um, even though, of course, many of us are... Um, older in this group. So look back, is your sleep the same as it was last decade, the decade before? How about when you were 18? <laughs> you know, it's different, right? So we already know it's different. Um, but retreat affects uh, sleep also because you're using your mind really differently. So again, we need to throw out our assumptions. Um, uh, sleep is not just the effect of physical tiredness. I know people who um, have sleep issues, you know, as they've gotten older, they've started to have the usual, I don't sleep as well kind of issues. And I know people who have started to do exercise in the evening or do a lot of exercise when they think they need to sleep that night or they didn't sleep well, so they go out and do a long hike. Um, maybe that works, although everyone I know who does that says it doesn't really work, they just think it ought to work. But this is because sleep is not about physical tiredness, really, it's not. I mean, otherwise you wouldn't, you know, yeah. So um, you don't need to tire yourself out in order to sleep. But the interesting thing is on retreat, um, the needs totally change because you're using your mind and your body differently anyway. Um, a mind that's concentrated and doing mindfulness practice uses, is more efficient. It uses less energy. The brain is a huge energy suck on the system. Um, and so it might be that you don't need that much sleep on retreat. I find um, repeatedly that I arrive on retreat, maybe the first day you need some sleep because people arrive sleep deprived or such a sleep deprived culture, even if you don't have problems as you get older or we're still sleep deprived at any age because of our high energy lifestyles. But I often find that um, I'm very tired on about the second day, first, second day. And it's hard to get through the very last sit, which ends at 9.30 p.m. That's getting up toward my bedtime. Um, so um, 
and I'm very sleepy and it's unpleasant, but I don't do anything different. I still stay through that sit and get up at five o'clock the next morning. And after a couple of days of that, uh, I'm not tired at 9.30, you know, and I didn't get any additional sleep. You know, I'm getting still only that seven, six and a half, seven, seven and a half hours. Um, very interesting. So don't assume also that sleep is linear and that if you, you know, you've got to catch up by having that 10 hour night at some point, uh, maybe not. And um, yeah, I was the PM manager, which meant I had tasks I had to do after the end of the 9.30 sit to shut the retreat down for the day. So I had to stay up. I couldn't say, well, I'm tired tonight. I think I'll just skip last sit. So interesting, interesting. Um, and then also, um, I find that uh, the sleep time, you know, the, the mind is reorganizing things during sleep. We already know that's part of what it does. But because retreat is such a different way of processing experience, um, sleep ends up being a different way of processing experience also. And I find that I do some, some of my best, not my best maybe, but I do some meditation uh, during the night. So, you know, when I wake up, I inevitably wake up at some point in the middle of the night, um, usually just briefly to um, use the restroom. But um, sometimes, of course, I lay awake for hours after that. But I find on retreat, uh, it's such a sweet time is that, you know, I come back, you know, I'm, I'm immediately mindful. Mindfulness is immediately there when I'm awake. And so I can lie there and uh, do kind of a lying down meditation for a little while. It's okay to meditate uh, right before you sleep and let sleep be the way you end the meditation, as long as not all your meditations end in sleep, <laughs> because that's, that's not a good way to condition the mind. But it's no problem. You can just lie there and feel the breath, feel the body. And I find that in that kind of half awake liminal period, um, especially in the pre-dawn, you know, kind of the four o'clock time frame, I can actually have insights and, and feel like I'm doing some of the processing work that I would be doing on the cushion, just at a slightly different level. So again, we're opening to other ideas about what's, you know, how experience is flowing and what we need to be doing at a given time. You don't need to be sleeping all night. If you only get four hours and then you meditate the rest of the night, it's probably all you needed. Don't worry about it. Just put it out of your mind about all this. Oh, I'm going to be tired and I'll have to nap and forget it. Just keep doing the, doing the practice and trusting that um, that's all the way it's supposed to be for you. So then that leads us to the next, another major area of regular human life, which is food. Another area we have all kinds of assumptions about what we need and what should be done and what, um, you know, et cetera. Um, uh, on retreat, you might not need very much food because you know you don't, um, you know, you're not using as much energy. Um, so there are, you know, there we we can have preset ideas about you know, got to fill the plate, or you know, we don't get food again for another five hours. So I'd better, you know, or you see somebody behind you in line, and they all they take is two spoonfuls of rice, one spoon of you know, one little spoon of lentils on top and a couple leaves of lettuce. And you look at it and, you, and your mind says, that's not healthy. You know, they're going to die on a diet like that. It's terrible. Um, but, you know, it's, that's all that they wanted. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I have this, uh, another thing that's not linear is that as concentration is developing, um, 
we, of, we often need very little food. Actually, you almost can't eat when the mind is um, settling, especially when it's getting up toward, you know, actually having some real samadhi. I find that I, you know, the food just doesn't go in. You know, it's like a couple bites, and it's like, oh, that's enough. You know, it's not interested. Um, but then when when I do act, so then you think, okay, that's going to be it. You know, as soon as I'm concentrated, you know, the mind is very efficient, body's settled, no need for food. But I find after um, concentration starts and I get the energy that comes with concentration, I eat more again. So, you know, it comes comes back. And I don't need to eat twice as much because I hardly ate anything for two days. It doesn't matter. It just sort of ramps up slowly. So again, there's kind of these, we have a chance to see our preset ideas um, about how we think we ought to be eating. I know people who think that we sort of have a survival idea around eating. It's almost like a kind of a, a yeah, survival-like, you know, it's like, got to get the food in, got to have more, got to have enough. Um, I don't know, maybe not. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Interesting to get a chance to bump up against our patterns like that. So my encouragement in all of these areas of pain and sleep and food is to be really present and actually do the instructions, which say, you know, be mindful of how the mind-body system is and be responsive to that. That's a very compassionate thing to do. So instead of just getting your usual plate of food and mindlessly sitting down and putting it all in, uh, the amount that you would normally eat at home, actually check, you know, as you're serving the food, does that feel like the right amount? When you're eating the food, are you done yet? If you still got half a plate, eh, they've got compost, it's okay, you don't have to finish. You know, can you, um, my teacher does a practice with, that I've also found quite fruitful of um, pausing between each bite and deciding, trying to stop exactly on the bite where if you take one more bite, you will be just slightly too full. And you'll have that little bit of heavy feeling. It says, can you stop on the bite before that? So it doesn't happen. Very interesting practice um, to discern that. Healthy also. Okay, so then um, we can get into kind of more, um, kind of deeper areas where we also have assumptions about how things are and can start to flow differently, uh, which is uh, time. So, you know, past, future, and present are things that we're supposed to discern in mindfulness, right? The basic instruction is sit down and be present with your experience. And what do we do? We find that we're in the past, we're in the future, you know, and we're like, oh, oh back, back, you know, and that's the practice and that's a very as Thomas Merton says, that's a very well-spent hour if all you do is bring your mind back from other things for the whole hour, very time well-spent. But we can ask, we start to ask interesting questions on retreat, like um, how do you know that something is the past or the future or the present? You know, it's all just mental activity, which is obvious when you're just sitting in a chair all day, not, not actually doing anything. Um, you know, and so you sit there and you're in a memory and then presence returns. Like, how do, you, how do you know that was a memory? Or sometimes you can even be present while you're remembering, right? When we start being able to have mindfulness of thinking, you can sit there and watch the mind remembering and you can see that the images that's appearing in your mind's eye are your rendition of what happened yesterday, your memory of what that was. 
you can see yourself walking up the steps to get into the retreat center and you're remembering, oh yeah, my bag was heavy, you know. Um, but you know it's a memory. So the question is, how do you know that's the past? You know, how do you know that image isn't being conjured, you know, of something in the future? It sounds crazy because we know the difference between past and future. It's so obvious we don't think about it. But if it's all mental activity, what is what marks past, future, or present in mind? What's the marker that where you can know what time frame is is your mind is engaged with? So it's worth exploring. Um, yeah. Give it a try sometime. There's there some feature that's always there, for example, when you're looking at the past. Of course, all of it is just your rendition of it, right? Because we're not, I mean, we are remembering things that, that happened, but um, studies show again and again that our memory is so bad. <laughs> you know, we, we, we are not recording things like a camera does. Um, so then there's a lot of also I, a chance to see our views and other things like that. Um, so I want to talk a little bit of then about how we can play with our perception of time. This is now getting into interesting areas of practice with perception. So generally what we're talking today about is how we can get caught up in our habitual ways of seeing. You know, it's like, this is just how it is for me with food and with sleep and with pain and with time. I'm not seeing alternatives. This is the only way, this is how it is. This is, but what you're saying is this is how my normal consciousness is. And you're not in normal consciousness on retreat necessarily. So one way that we can weaken our habits or allow our mind to be more open is to kind of play with our ways of seeing things. So don't think too much about what I'm going to um, say. Just kind of um, uh, rest in the feeling that comes with it. I want to play a little bit with our notion of the flow of time. So we're, we're often very burdened with our understanding of time <clears throat> because we live in what I like to call uh, personal or historical time. So personal time is my life, you know, what's on my to-do list today and how am I going to, what am I going to make for dinner and making sure I remember this and that. It's, you know, the personal time scale of minutes and hours and days. And then there's also the historical time scale, which we are burdened by. And that's what we read in the news. It's the flow of world events. We remember, you know, we've been in this COVID thing for 20 months now and we were, maybe we're, um, uh, reading about the history of um, racism in this country and we're, you know, challenged by oh, gosh, a couple hundred years of this and what's going on in the last few decades. And, you know, historical time is all these things that we have to kind of process and be with and the way society is. And it's going to take years to work through this. And the next president is going to address it. And, you know, that kind of time, all of this is burdensome. Um, uh, often concept of time. And there are other ways of, not that, you know, it's just one way of perceiving, it's not that it's bad, but it, it has a lot of potential for dukkha. So I want to offer some other options. You know, there we can go um, to sort of more extremes that are interesting. So um, I don't know, maybe the universe is beginningless. Um, like the Buddhist texts say, time is beginningless. But at least there is a limit to the time that, how far back we can see. You know, if we look back, um, there is a limit to that. So if we take all of known time, um, cosmological time, um, imagine that we could compress that into one year. Okay, so, you know, 
January 1st is the earliest moment we can see in the universe, like back to just about the Big Bang. And then midnight on December 31st is the present moment. So just imagine that we created a year like that. How would that look? So if we, if we think that way, uh, what does our year look like? Well, the Earth formed in the first week of September of that year. So there was a lot that happened before the Earth, but we have the Earth forming in the first week of September. And then the simplest life forms appeared around the third week of September. And, um, but most, that was single-celled life. And so we have single-celled life in late September, and then multicellular life did not appear until the first week of December. Um, so um, that's maybe around now, right? It's December 7th today. So imagine the whole year up to now, multicellular life has finally arrived today. Um, and then the non-avian dinosaurs died out when? December 30th, early in the day. Um, and then humans appeared in Africa on December 31st at about 10.30 p.m. So we're kind of latecomers to the party. Um, the Buddha lived six seconds before midnight, and the last 400 years of human history occupy the last second of that year. So that puts things in perspective, I think, about time. So instead of feeling, you know, sort of thinking about this cognitively, just feel into the vastness of co cosmic time, you know, let the mind open to this sweep of an evolving universe that is way more ancient than our, our little earth. It's kind of breathtaking. And suddenly our life problems look relatively small. <laughs> 400 years is less than one second in this model. So, you know, this is this kind of, um, I find it kind of relieving. But then, you know, alternatively, there's a whole universe also, if we go to the other end of um, immersing ourselves in the richness of immediate experience, this very moment is also quite vast. If we were to open to all of the experience that's available in this moment, all of the, think about all your sense doors are being impacted in some way at this moment, some of them more subtly than others, but there's so many things you could be looking at. Um, there's the sounds and there's the touch sensations of your clothing, of the chair. Um, there, is a, there is a taste of your saliva. There's probably some kind of scent, a little bit of subtle maybe, but, um, or maybe not if you still have dinner smells lingering in the house. So, um, but you're not processing all of that at once. It would be too much. So your system, you know, cuts out a lot of that. Um, but there's a vastness to this, um, the impressions that are coming to us every moment. And they're kind of layered and, and vivid if we were to open to more of them. And if we, if we do that, which we can on retreat, we can let all of the sound and light and texture and color and motion just kind of wash over the mind like a vibrating fluid. And there's, you know, we have this immediacy This every moment is very rich like this. And it's, it doesn't, um, doesn't allow the formation of a sense of self. It's so immediate. We don't have time to create something like that. So these, these are um, timeframes where there's no room for a personal sense of me. And 
This is available to us, especially on retreat, as the mind becomes less tied. It doesn't have all those obligations to take care of our thoughts. And we can see in each of these, um, you know, sort of more radical, bold views of time, that um, we can see the three characteristics of Anicca, Dukkha, and Ananta. And we can see that everything is changing, everything is flowing. Nothing has ever stopped <laughs> in this whole world. And it's therefore none of it is satisfying. It's never going to stop. Um, and at least, you know, in ordinary, in sensory consciousness, it doesn't stop. And, and there's no room really for a self. The self is just one more construction within all of that time bound for sure. Um, so each of these ways of seeing time, it's not like one of them is the real one. They're all just different perspectives, not better than another, but they're all different, right? And so we can play with these different ways of seeing things um, in order to allow the mind you know, more expansiveness, more uh, fluidity or flexibility in how it is. Eventually, we'll find something outside of time. This helps to broaden the mind. So then, you know, as I a little bit implied in the talking about immediacy, we start to see that our views and our concepts, you know, are playing a big role in our experience. Our experience is pre-shaped by these things, these views and ideas and assumptions that we carry. So an interesting question is, would, would you let someone censor your experience? Um, you already do this to yourself. You're doing it. And a lot of that censoring is somewhat diluted, um, you know, not based completely in truth, because it's based on all these ideas that we can see to be false when we're on retreat, all these ideas about things how they are and should be and what things are. It's very humbling um, and kind of disturbing sometimes to realize that even what's coming in has already been filtered by our karma in certain ways. And uh, we didn't get a choice about that. So then we start, you know, realizing, oh, these practices are really important because these practices reshape that pre-filter so that we can get more truthful information coming through. So even, you know, even naming things affects experience. If you name something a certain way or name it a different way, you can feel the impact of that on the mind. So this, these are things, again, that also start to open on retreat much more clearly when we're able to start seeing through these patterns. I got a, um, one of those teabag wisdom things on this retreat that um, I found was quite amusing. Uh, maybe it's more that it was amusing in that particular moment on retreat and it will fall flat at this moment, but I'll try anyway, which was it, I opened this tea bag and it said, the problem is not the problem. The problem is your attitude about the problem. <laughs> I thought, yeah, <laughs> that, that kind of sums it up <laughs> pretty well. Um, so I was reminded, of, you know, all of this reminds me of the... Um, a saying from the suttas that the Buddha said, where he says, however they conceive, it is ever different than that. You know, however people conceive of things, it is ever different from that. The moment that we've conceptualized something, it's already frozen into something different than it was in the 
in the exact direct experience of the moment. And yet, you know, here we are conceptualizing, we have to, but we need to do that more and more wisely so that the concepts that are pre-shaping our experiences on Karas are more accurate, more truthful, more in line with how things really are. So we begin to see the importance of what the Zen people call beginner's mind, you know, which is starting to refer to this process of saying, wait a minute, I, I don't want to carry in my assumptions of how things are. I don't want to carry in my expert's mind of this is how it is. This is the way it needs to be. This is how it should be. I've already got it all figured out. That's not, that's not the, the way to move along the path. So um, I think we can start to have more of this beginner's mind as we begin to widen our experience in human life, widen our experience of what a human life can be and what our body and mind can look like, feel like. Daily meditation does do this, um, but retreat does it far more, I think, than can be imagined. So maybe this is also kind of a long advertisement for maybe it's time to go back on retreat now that the centers are open. Um, I highly recommend it. I love online retreat. I never had no idea it was so wonderful. I had never done one until um, you know the pandemic started and I've discovered a whole new form. And yet um, you know, being back on physical retreat is also good. So I'm actually kind of delighted that we now have both of these modes available to us. But um, yeah, these were kind of the thoughts I wanted to share about the possibilities for seeing things differently. We have some time left. Um, I didn't. I don't want to just talk the whole time on these things. So, please, um, if you have any questions or want to share an experience or a dog. <laughs> Dharma dog licking your hand. Eve. Uh, I love the idea that we may not have time for a sense of self. I, I think that's just a, a really nice one to play with. But I want, I've discovered online tonight just something for people if they live in Arizona, if everyone lives in Arizona. There's a place in Tucson called Kadampa Buddhism. I don't know much about Kadampa, <clears throat> but they seem to have very nice facilities anyway, but they're offering a grant a retreat up in Williams, Arizona, which is not far from the Grand Canyon. And I looked at it tonight. It's, it's like for four days, like $330 or something. And to, every, the food is like another 60 or something. I mean, it was amazing. If I had known about this before, I would have jumped on it. It's a little bit late now, but for anyone who um, has time, and can arrange their lives that you can go online and take a look at that. Uh, I just wanted to mention that. I, I would okay. love to do retreat again. I just haven't, haven't done it. Yeah, all the centers are open now and apparently there are also these, um, these other options. Thank you. Evie. I don't know when I undid my mute. So I hope you haven't been hearing my son in the background, but um, no, I mean, so 
it also just strikes me. So I'm totally on board with the retreat, the retreat advertisement. Um, but also just the possibility that in regular life of sort of just rethinking, right? Like, like, I mean, a lot of the things that you just said, right? Sleep and eating and and just sort of any expectations or stories about how it's supposed to be or even how it is. <laughs> I mean, I don't think it's something that just has to be, you know, on retreat, you sort of have an opportunity to do these daily activity kind of, you know, to do that kind of examination of daily in, in a more, you have more spaciousness to do that. But I don't really see why it has to just be a retreat. Oh, yeah, I don't. I don't think it has to just be on retreat. Um, I didn't mean to say that's the only place, but it's, um, I think a different level happens on retreat than elsewhere. But yeah, this, um, I mean, it's all one long retreat. Once you decide to embark on this path, <laughs> your whole life becomes the path. So yeah, we have periods of retreat, but in between we, um, we do the same practices just at the um, in the way that we can with our our daily life consciousness and we do need to transform all those different levels of the mind yeah I mean one thing I really noticed that I mean I finally sort of figured out about these online retreats at least for me right now because my house is very crowded um, that just you know rather than feeling like a failure for not managing to do like to do the retreat, right? Like not talk to people. It's just, it's impossible for me and it doesn't make sense, but, um, but how valuable it is to sort of, um, to not engage in the same way, to kind of watch myself, like to give myself permission to not be as, you know, everybody knows I'm really not going to talk to you guys very much. <laughs> and, you know, and, um, then to watch how like, okay, I know that I'm not going to engage with my son, for example, about the fact that it's 1130 at night and he's probably still not doing his homework, right? But like watching what happens in, I have more of an opportunity to watch since I'm not engaging and just these right. sort of melded like these, you know, and nothing's happening between us because I'm not talking to him. So instead I get to just watch what happens inside me it has absolutely nothing to do with any interaction because there is no interaction. And I don't know, just, I feel like the pandemic has taught me a lot about sort of the, the um, sort of not strictly retreat, not strictly just, just merging these things. So, yeah. And I've signed up for an IRC retreat at the end of January. I'm so excited. I was a waitlisted and got in, so. Yay, congratulations. It's yeah. <laughs> good. Carol, you're unmuted. Yeah, I have a regular life experience to share. Um, I used to, I used to react all over the place, and um, th I was making Thanksgiving dinner for five of us, not a huge one. And my husband was away from the house picking up a guest, and my kids weren't here yet, so I was all by myself. And I cut my finger with a knife, what I thought was pretty badly. I, I don't dare to look at it. I cover it up and I squeeze it. It felt like it was bleeding a lot, seemed like a lot of blood. I was scared. 
And I immediately went into my old reacting mode, but I did take myself out to the deck and sat down and remembered to just breathe and calm myself down. And I, I realized that it wasn't exactly, it felt painful at first too, but it wasn't, it wasn't that painful. I was just trying to kind of dissect the pain for a little bit. And I, once I calmed down, everything was much better. I felt like I was more in the experience of it than my crazy idea of what the experience was. And, um, and I, it wasn't until the next day that I realized that I never knew I had a choice before. Uh-huh. I thought that this is what you did when you hurt yourself or got all excited, you know, that that's what you do. But realizing, oh, I chose another path and how liberating and how, um, yeah, how, how a beginner's mind. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting when you were saying, here, here we are at this stage in our lives where we, we are more expert at things, but this is when we should really um, reach our beginner's mind or find our beginner's mind. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a beautiful example. And it's, it's kind of how things work in the practice, right? Is that you didn't have to do like specific, you know, training about how to handle cuts in more creative ways. You know, you didn't have to do a class on that. It just kind of emerged from your yeah. practice of you know, opening the mind and being less reactive. And so other pathways open. It's like this so often. Um, it's it's some sometimes people kind of analyze what all their problems are and they say, well, I've got got an anger problem and I've got a problem with panicking in this situation and they've got it all figured out we're so psychological you know we've got it all figured out and then we say I'm going to do this for this and I'm going to do this for to remedy that I'm going to do that to remedy that um and you know that's not that you can never do that kind of thought about yourself self-reflection but I don't know this practice works at a different level somehow and and I'm not going to the other extreme of saying all you have to do is do mindfulness and meditation and everything will be solved. I don't think that's true either. But we, we, this is another area to give up our expectations is you, know, you don't really know how the effects are going to come about. Um, maybe you'll be surprised that suddenly you behave differently when you cut your finger someday. And uh, it didn't come about from any specific moment of meditation or insight that you can point to, but it was there. It, was, it emerged in that moment. Beautiful. Michaela, you're unmuted. Uh, I had an extraordinary experience this afternoon. Um, So I have a dear friend who's quite a bit younger than I am that I'm very close to, and we do music together and poetry, and we've been friends for a while and sharing intimately. And and, um, it turns out that she's married to a, a, a physician or a doctor who is an alternative medicine person and she's very alternative in a lot of ways and and then she told me a year ago or less that she she and her husband were not vaccinated and they and they decided not to be vaccinated and um 
that challenged me a lot. We, we met on the phone or we met on zoom and I, I didn't feel comfortable, you know, having her come over. And um, then I found that I was developing a, a judgment about it. Uh, and there was a separation between us that was coming from me because I was judgmental about it. You know, this is, this is a national duty, you know, to get vaccinated in my mind in the circles that I live in. And I don't talk to a lot of people. I don't know any, she's the only person I know who's not, who's not vaccinated. So I struggled with it and I decided, you know, we were close enough that I could venture to say, um, her name's Charlie. I, I ventured to say, Charlie, um, I would like to talk to you about this, not just push it under the rug and, you know, continue our friendship. I would like to really find out. So she was willing to do that. And we had the conversation today and it was an experience that I haven't had really in my life. I, I, I asked her just to talk and tell me what, why, what, and all the things. And she had a very long story and it had to do with a lot of things that I don't know anything about. I couldn't counter, you know, the research here or the studies here or the information that stuff is being suppressed. There's a lot of, it felt a lot, a lot of, um, um, conspiracy theory kind of thing, but not in the conservative way, a much more liberal kind of way. Mm. I hadn't encountered this at all. Her own doctor has not vaccinated and doesn't really believe in vaccination. So holy cow, my stomach was just going. And I thought, I don't want to hurt her. I want to love her. I want to be loving, but I have to be true to myself. And um, it was an extraordinary, we had about 40 minutes and we came to the end where we both were breathing deeper, were relaxed. We even laughed a little bit. It just kind of subsided a little bit. I said, you know, I said what I felt. I, just, I was able to not hold back my, my feelings with her knowing that I loved her and I didn't want to hurt her, but I didn't understand. And it made me feel really stupid and scared. And like, you know, these are things I don't know about. Should I know about them? Anyway, it was a breakthrough because, you know, we, 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 you can't do that with it. Most people. Right. You do have a special connection to her to be able to, to have right. that conversation. And she must have a fair amount of she may not call it mindfulness, but, you know, a fair amount of skill and yes. being with you and being in conversation and holding uh, kind of challenging feelings in herself or she, you know, she right. couldn't have stayed present. It, it was quite extraordinary. I just, I haven't had a chance to tell anybody. So I, I thought it was really, you know, um, relevant for what we're talking about, perception and the whole business of, of time and what we think we know. You know, I think I know what's going on, you know, but I'm just, I'm, I, I'm a person that defers to authority very easily the whole life. You know, I've been an obedient little girl. <laughs> I just obey the rules. And a lot of people aren't that way. And there's some value in what they know and what they're finding. So I opened myself to that and I'm, I have a lot to process and think about. Hmm. Thank you for sharing that. And I do miss retreat practice. <laughs> I don't know if I will be able to resume because my eyesight and um, so I'm going to really concentrate. I have a, a different from um, 
um, Evie, I, I have a wonderful, you know, retreat place where I live. I'm all alone and it's very beautiful and it's very quiet. And I, I love the way that you talked about that, what, what we do on retreat, how it's different with our bodies and our sleep and our pain and our food. And I thought, okay, I'm going to just, I'm just going to keep doing this here. I'm going to do a two week retreat in February here and, you know, check in teachers here and there, but anyway, Great. thank you. Thank you very much. It's such a beautiful part of our practice. Thank you. Steve. <clears throat> Michaela, you must have been talking to my stepdaughter. I mean, she's, it's, I'm relating so intensely to what you said because she's in that camp and sending me all kinds of articles and telling me ivermectin is what the vaccinated people are causing the variant and oh my goodness gracious and and how do we bite our tongue enough <laughs> to not say man you're crazy what is that? oh it's it's really difficult so thank you very much for sharing that i i didn't know that too many other people were facing that but i guess there's there's a lot of that out there yeah, I have some friends whose children are not vaccinated and they, um, you know, they want to see their grandchildren, but their children aren't vaccinated. And so they've had to have some interesting conversations. Susan, and then maybe that'll be the last one. Uh, I just want to say that uh, I do miss the retreats and I've been doing lots of retreats uh, at home. Uh, and I'm pretty good about most of it and everything. And I don't have a real busy household, but you know, it's so different to have other people sitting with you. There's an energy. It's like, there's something in the room that it brings something to what I do. You know, I mean, there's a, a group energy that is built with, uh, uh, when you sit with a, a group of people and I really miss that. And and I, it just, it's just a, such a different experience. And I really, really miss that. Yeah. I didn't get that. <laughs> oh. Siri. Oh, there's a chat. Okay. Oh. <laughs> the Analio interview, there was a, is up online. Okay. That was something yeah. that you were talking about. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It, it was supposed to, I mean, they usually put them up right away. It's just, I don't know. They just must have taken a holiday. <laughs> this is a separate conversation. Yes. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. Also, yeah, that group energy. Um, I think we're starting to see that group energy forming more online as more people get used to it. It's kind of weird the way these things get conditioned in, but I know somebody who just had an online retreat for a week and she said that she was surprised there seemed to be a new level of presence in the online hall that she hadn't even felt up to now with things are just kind of building up as people get used to that form. So it may be that it stays on as a robust form, especially for people for whom it's not easy to get to retreat centers. So I think, uh, I think we now have a new, new mode of practice that we didn't have before. Okay, well, gosh, this is great, but we were out of time. Oh, um, yeah, we're out of time for tonight.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.